This is the Aussie Animal Show on Triple A Radio. My name is Rob Armstrong. Welcome to the wildlife. As I'm recording this, I'm receiving reports of the massacre that took place in Canberra last night at Red Hill. The local kangaroos are being slaughtered in an unjustified so-called environmental cull. We've covered this in a program. I'd just like to read you some of the reports that are coming out of Canberra. Whitney says, it's so sad. I was on Red Hill the other day and saw only a few kangaroos, some with joeys in the pouch. Sad to think they're likely no longer alive. Asia writes, this is absolutely horrendous. I can never forgive the ACT government or the directorate for what they're doing. My heart hurts for the kangas of Red Hill. For anyone in the ACT, there is a protest. Save Canberra's kangaroos. It's being held on Wednesday, the 13th of July, 12 to 2 p.m. outside the ACT Legislative Assembly, London Court, Canberra, ACT. If you can get there, please turn up. Show the directorate that people care about Canberra's kangaroos. I've got to be careful here because I might sound a little bit bitter. But in the last week, I've been in email correspondence with the Conservation Directorate, the Environment Department, the Minister. And I've been told that they consider there's been enough public consultation and that their killing is humane. They won't speak to me. They won't speak to the residents of Canberra trying to voice their opposition. They stick by faulty science to support the killing of these kangaroos in Canberra's nature parks. Check out the previous interview on the on-demand page here at AAA Radio. Save Canberra's kangaroos. When protest, Wednesday, 13th of July, 12 to 2 p.m. at the Legislative Assembly, London Court, Canberra, ACT. For more information, and please show your support. Log on to Facebook and go to Save Canberra's Kangaroos Facebook page. As this program was ready to go to air, we've had to change the program to include an interview with Jessica Robertson from Ballarat Koala Rescue and Advocacy. There's been a major change in events regarding the Gordon Koalas. Jess, a lot has happened since we last spoke. Can you bring us up to date with what's happening with the Gordon koalas? Sure. Thanks, Rob. Um, so a few weeks ago, I was told that I might have the opportunity to talk to the minister's advisors, the environment minister's advisors, about our Gordon situation. So um, this was actually supposed to happen a few weeks ago and it got delayed and delayed, but finally it happened last Friday. I actually got um, the opportunity with Andy Medic to speak with some of her advisors about our case in Gordon. Um, and knowing I could talk to our case in Gordon, I made sure it was a visual presentation so they knew exactly what was at stake in terms of where those koalas are located. So the meeting was pretty interesting. A lot came out of that meeting and a lot more than I expected came out of that meeting. So the first thing that after I described what was happening 
they clearly saw it as a no-brainer to relocate those koalas, which was interesting given the response that we had had from Central Highlands and Delp and Midway. So they, they sort of said, well, there's been no application. There's been no ACTW application from anyone, from Central Highlands, from Midway. We haven't received anything at all. And I said, well, yes, we know that because we found that out through the process that they hadn't actually lodged the application to relocate the koalas. And then they said, no, they've never, they've never replied. There's been no application to apply for an ACTW. And I sort of stopped and thought, well, okay. So I didn't actually even know that was required. So this was news to me. So I found out through that conversation that regardless of whether they were going to relocate the koalas or not, to clear that plantation, they actually had to apply for an ATCW permit which is an authority to control wildlife permit. And all plantation companies need to apply for that if there are koalas identified in that plantation. One of our concerns, Jess, is that they've been given a a blanket approval to do things, but this is not true. They need to apply for an approval for each plantation? Exactly, Rob. So I assumed that this authority was actually in the koala management plan, which no one has access to because that's a private document between DELP and the industry. But it's not. They actually, on top of the wildlife, on top of the koala management plan, they have to apply for an ATCW, and they did not do that. So that was news to me. So we were told by Central Highlands Water that the conservation regulator did not support the relocation of the koalas. So we knew that that, that application was never put through, but we ne- what we didn't know was that they actually, by law, to clear that plantation, needed to put an application through, and they did not do that. And that was confirmed by the minister's office. So just clarify that again. We've got the plantation company not adhering to the guidelines that they're supposed to operate under. Exactly. So not following regulatory process. So if they are not following regulatory process in this little, little um, situation, in our, in our scenario, this little 17-hectare plantation, how often are they not following process? This is a big question now we have to ask as a community. Who is regulating this industry? Well, DELPA. But if DELP are advising them not to follow process, why? This is what we need to start asking. It's, it's inconvenient. They've got to fill out forms. Yeah, so we're pretty, we're pretty enraged by this because, yeah, these are dodgy deals being done in the background. And if we hadn't have dug further into this, if we hadn't have done our our own investigations, we would never have known about this. They would have cleared that plantation with the koalas in it and the koalas would have likely been killed on the freeway, if not during the clear felling. Yep. And that would have been unauthorised and no one would have known any better. No one would have known anything. What would have happened is those koalas would have been, if they weren't killed in the harvesting process, they would have been displaced they would have had to cross that 110-kilometre-an-hour freeway and suffer the stress, which would have then been identified as a health issue. So if they were picked up, they may have been euthanised. Exactly, which is basically the situation in the southwest. So if they do survive the plantation clearing, they're displaced, they've got no food, they get hit by cars. They die from 
they were emaciated, they died from starvation or stress-related illness, and they're not that data is not collected. They just die. They just die. I mean, this is the situation that we have in the Southwest. So that has gone completely unnoticed by the rest of Victoria because it's happening in a, in a, in a region where people don't know what's going on in plantations. People don't know because none of this process is transparent. None of it. We, we wouldn't know this stuff unless we had dug and dug and dug until we found out the truth. And, you know, we shouldn't have to work this hard just to make sure that industry and government, or well, government are regulating industry. We, we shouldn't have to do this. It's crazy. The whole thing has just been a stalling process, hoping you would go away. Absolutely. And you did Well, no, I'm like a dog with a bone and I will not go away because... Well, I can't. I mean, the more we find out about this, the more I learn about this industry and how it's supported by our department. It's there's something terribly wrong, terribly wrong. A lot of it seems to depend on this strategy, this koala strategy. It doesn't look good for the koalas. What could the department do? I mean... They can't handle four koalas in a plantation. What are they going to do with 200,000 or, or, as they say, 50,000? But we all know that figure is uh, grossly downplayed. Exactly. Well, as we know from the Victorian Koala Management Strategy draft that was put around for um, public you know, consultation, uh, I read that and I did feedback onto that strategy and we learnt that there are 50,000 at least koalas living in blue gum plantations and that there is no native habitat for them to go to when these come down and yet there's no strategy. There is nothing. Even in the, the draft that was sent around, they, they didn't really have answers. I guess they're looking to the public for answers. But they've known about this for decades. They've known about the koalas breeding in those plantations for decades and they've done nothing. Your discussions with the department, they didn't offer any possible avenue to solve this problem? Well, we didn't go into too much detail about the broader issues. We were talking, we were there that day to talk about Gordon specifically. Okay, yep. Um, but, I, yeah, I don't, I don't believe, I don't believe they have any solutions. We didn't go into too much detail, but it didn't sound like they did. Look, you know, we, we've got barely any koalas left in Ballarat. I don't know about the southwest. I mean, I know they have they have an abundance of koalas, but it's only due to the bluegum plantations. In the rest of Victoria, they are largely endangered, if not critically endangered, extinct in some areas now. And we are we are verging on critically endangered in Ballarat. And that's why we fought so hard for these four koalas. And through the process of fighting for these four koalas, we found that none of the process to protect them is regulated in this massive, massive industry supported by government. Someone has to be responsible. Well, yeah, the department needs to be responsible. <laughs> it's, it's, it's under their regulation, supposedly, that, these, that, our, that our wildlife is protected. They keep telling us, don't worry, the wildlife are protected under the Wildlife Act 1970. You know, that's, got, that, that's supposed to settle our nerves about this well it doesn't because i mean the fact that that's a 48 year old policy is already you know alarming 
but you know the processes that are put in place to protect our wildlife they're not adhered to and they're not expected to be adhered to obviously i mean the delp officers on the ground in midway with midway in in, in gordon surely they weren't saying you know you should really follow process is probably we want those koalas protected clearly that didn't happen so we don't know what happened, but it wasn't that. Thank you for being like a dog with a bone, because otherwise the stalling process was beautifully done. But what you've exposed now is actually a problem within DELP, where it appears as though the regional officers are saying, all right, guys, yeah, no, that's all right. Don't worry about that. Do you think that's what's happening? Yeah, I do. And, and I want to know why. And I want to know why. <laughs> The, the minister's office told us that they had not, I mean, they're not necessarily supporting the conservation regulator, even though they're the regulatory side. They're saying nothing was nothing was put in, no, no application was put in. So they're telling us the truth, nothing was put in. Whereas we hear nothing from the DELP officers or the conservation regulator, nothing. They've... Yeah. Oh, look, they shut down, they cut us off. They're running their own show. Yeah. They're running their own show, clearly. Um, Maybe we need to get rid of them. If they're acting like an arm of business, they should go out and set themselves up as a private business. I get them the, off the government payroll. Yeah, and I think the public need to start asking the question, who is it that's supporting wildlife in our government? Whose job is it and how are they doing it? Are they doing it? Yeah, these questions need to be asked, definitely. And it doesn't matter which government we sit under, Labor, Liberal, the department exists. It doesn't change, right? This department needs to be looked at. Look, we know this is only the tip of the iceberg, and I know there's a few things you can't talk about at the moment, but all we can say is watch this space. Yeah. Because this is developing into a major issue and should be exposed before the state election. Absolutely. Absolutely. People need to get loud and angry because this is an, an incredible injustice. We don't know what's happening to all those koalas in the plantations in the southwest. In fact, no, we do. We got a glimpse of it with the Cape Bridgewater, right? So we got a glimpse yeah. of what's happening because of a whistleblower. And we only know about that because of a whistleblower. What we don't see, we don't know. And clearly, the plantation industry are not being regulated. So God knows what's happening to our poor koalas. We, we can only, I don't even want to think about it really. Eight months of community consultation with Central Highlands Water, eight months of consultation, meetings, back and forth, um, letting us think that our opinions were valued as a community. What a crock. We were lied to. We were completely lied to. This is a publicly listed company. We would like to. Sodium fluoroacetate, better known as 1080, and a horrific compound. A white, odorless, tasteless poison designed to kill. It has no known antidote. A deadly substance that is considered of great concern to the Australian government. If it was to fall into terrorist hands, it could decimate our populations. 
but we spread it all over the countryside. So tonight we're looking at the 1080 issue. I won't hold back. I've opposed the use of 1080 for a long time. Let's speak with Andy Medic, Animal Justice Party MP, and a great supporter of Australian wildlife. Andy, before we start talking about 1080, can I take this opportunity to go back to the May state budget and thank you for what you achieved, not just for all animals, but specifically you organised some grant money for the koalas here in the Ballarat region. And thank you so much for coming to bat for those animals. Oh, look, it's it's no problem at all. The, the situation that koalas are facing in Ballarat and Gordon and surrounding areas is really indicative of the crisis that koalas are in in the whole of the southwest of Victoria. We have a horrible problem going on down there where there's an inordinate amount of plantation gums, et cetera, um, where these animals have made their homes over, you know, for, for a long time now. And, yes, the plantations are supposed to implement a koala management plan before deforesting the area, but they're largely not adhered to. It's why we have a, such a number of deaths and they've really got not a lot of area to go to in terms of you know, state forest, et cetera, because there is old growth logging in those areas too. So they're losing habitat at a rapid rate and having nowhere to go. And when the moratorium on old growth logging kicks in, like a ban in 2030 when the government said they're going to end it, we're still going to have a problem in that there'll be some respite there for those koala populations and other animals that live in those areas. But a lot of that area is going to take a long time to recover. Mm. And therefore, as the plantations come down, those animals are going to seek shelter in those places. And so we're going to have a population explosion in those areas. So we're going to face another crisis of our own making. It's just a perfect storm, for the, unfortunately, for those koalas. Unfortunately, no one predicted that the blue gum plantations would provide such a perfect habitat to allow numbers to increase. And yeah. it is a perfect storm. It is a problem. Uh, we're talking in excess of 200,000 koalas in Victoria that will be displaced as harvesting continues. Yeah. And, of course, plantations by themselves is a brilliant idea to take pressure off the old growth logging. But it's only the tip of the iceberg and uh, your involvement with the for Gordon koala issue and also the plantation koala issue has, has been magnificent. And I know the people involved in those campaigns are very, very appreciative of your support. Um, More recently, you visited Mount Richmond after the Delt burn. Can you just give us a, a minute or two of your thoughts on that situation? Yeah, well, it appears to me that despite the best efforts of people like Parks Victoria, for instance, who were involved around the outside and there were DELP officers as well. From start to finish, it was mismanaged, in my opinion. The area in question on Mount Richmond, and there is quite a lot of the area in that southwest area, is really being invaded by, it's a native species, but it's not native to Victoria. You know, it's a wattle species that's come over from South Australia. Now, what it does is it, in its left to its own devices normally it only grows to a shrub height you know it's not very high it, it's quite you know leafy and foliage etc and quite dense and and that's how it normally grows and it provides in in where it normally resides in south australia it becomes like part of a heathland situation almost but 
it's become so invasive in in southwest Victoria and Western Victoria in the natural bushland where there are you know sugar gums and ghost gums and all sorts of other and other other habitat for koalas there that they've grown it's grown to be almost impenetrable and it's come up to heights that are right under the gum canopy so it's actually blocking out the light to provide other habitat on the ground right and also then being also bushy it's it's almost impenetrable so what was happening before the prescribed burn was that in a normal situation, these officers and in tandem with, with it, whatever organisations they choose to work with, now that, that can be Parks Vic, it can be Zoos Victoria, it can be local rescuers, it doesn't matter, that they would normally go in and do counts and they would make every effort to, to move those animals on if that's possible. And sometimes that's getting arborists in and, and, and translocating and that sort of thing. What's happened this time is because it's so impenetrable, all these orgs, such as Parks Vic and, and Delp, they've just driven around the perimeter of the burn zone, which is about was about 230 hectares. And because they couldn't get in, they've just looked at the koalas that they could see from those that perimeter and decided that was the population of that area. So they didn't use an extrapolation formula to say, well, obviously there's going to be animals living inside the perimeter right through. They've just looked at that and said, right, well, that's the population. So consequently, they made efforts for those animals on the outside or on the edges, but nothing for those that might be inside. Now, I've put this to them. I've put it to the minister. Everyone agrees that, look, it could have been done better. We've, I've been down there with other people, you know, um, local rescuers, um, koala experts, and we've We've walked the fire ground and, and the devastation is just incredible because this species of wattle burns so hot that it gets rid of everything. And consequently, these animals really had no time and nowhere to go. So it, it was just, it, it's absolutely horrendous. So what we've asked to happen in the future is that technology, you know, which we've we've all got now, um, such as drone technology, which is used quite extensively by DOAB itself and other government departments, could be used in this situation where transgressing on the ground just becomes impossible because it's impassable. Well, then use this drone technology to, to, um, to go in and to you know, make a great count of, of what animals are actually in there because this will help not just in terms of the koala populations, but it'll help to be able to grid up a particular area within a burn zone that you want to have and make an estimation of what other types of animals there, what ground dwellers might there be, what have traditionally been known to exist in that area and make population counts there and have a better plan going forward because that's certainly what we need. But the koalas in particular, I mean, and when we walked through, we even saw emus, you know, racing through in, the, in that, that scrub and, and in that burnt out area. And those animals are facing a situation where they're, they've returned back to the burn zone because that's where they lived, but they've really got nothing to feed on because the burn was so hot that it's destroyed all the vegetation. So, you know, but the koalas in particular in that area and in the whole of the southwest, this is really going to be a massive problem when we consider the bushfires that we had in 2019 and 20 in the east of the state, where koala populations were wiped out in many areas and decimated in others where it's estimated over a billion animals were killed. So if you take that into consideration, along with the situation that's about to occur in the west of Victoria, 
koalas are going to be in a, a terrible situation, much like or even worse than what they're facing in New South Wales and southeast Queensland. Same problem, just a different place. It really comes down to relocation and providing uh, wildlife corridors and maintaining native forest to allow natural expansion of the animal. Mm, exactly. Look, and I, and I do understand the pressures that the state government has in, in trying to juggle uh, an industry, a foresting industry, which is going to be shut down. You know, we'd ideally like to see that much, much sooner than what they have planned. But I, I look, I do understand the pressures that there are people working in that industry and in the sawmills and et cetera, and you can't just cut them off from their income overnight. I think everyone understands that. However, I think given the crisis that's facing these native animals, I think the timeframe does need to be brought forward. And if that means financial compensation packages to those workers, well, then let's do that. Let's not just look at, you know, uh, retraining for other industries or anything like that sort of thing. Have those things going, yes, but bring forward a compensation package, increase it if that needs be, so that these people have got some sort of just transition away, whether that's moving into a different trade or whether it's, well, I've got my compensation package, I, I can move on and do something else anyway. I think those things are all doable, but, but and they have to be done, in my opinion, because of the crisis that these koalas are going to be facing in the not-too-distant future. What you've put forward is just so in line with the AJP policy of animals, people. Andy, 1080, sodium fluoroacetate, it needs to be banned? Why? Well, it, it certainly does need to be banned because um, we have this ridiculous situation again and all these things add up. So we've just spoken about the koalas, um, you know, but then we, we look at all the pressures that are facing our native animals and in particular dingoes when we talk about 1080. Now, you know, one of the things we can make all the great conservation efforts in the world, we're going to stop this old growth logging, we're going to restore these areas, we're going to entice the native species back. We've got organisations like Zoos Victoria who are working on, you know, breeding programs for minor marsupials, you know, that, such as dunnarts and bandicoots and, and all sorts. And they've got great breeding programs for those smaller marsupials, ground-dwelling marsupials and others, platypus, etc. And they're putting those back out into these spaces. But that means nothing if these animals are coming under attack from introduced species or clear felling, et cetera, et cetera, of habitat loss due to agriculture. Now, so we have to see this as a holistic solution. And from the agriculture perspective, there's this false narrative that's being run by the agriculture sector, in particular the animal agriculture sector, that there are so many of their animals that are being killed by so-called wild dogs. Now, wild dogs is a, a misnomer. What they're actually talking about is dingoes and they're not the number that they're claiming they are. Like there's anecdotal, you know, they're, they're coming out and saying, you know, well, there's tens of thousands of, of lambs and sheep and, and, and cattle killed every year by wild dogs. Well, you know, I've seen the figures from the now disbanded Wild Dog Management Committee. And for instance, they amount to on average, I think it was over a 10 year period per year, there was only about 200 animals that farmers were claiming were actually taken because they receive, they can apply for and receive financial compensation for the animals that they lose due to so-called wild dog attacks. And the numbers that they're claiming are just so low that it is ridiculous to blame them for that. 
this could this could be occurring for a number of other reasons from other predators such as foxes etc other introduced species and we know from the dna sampling that's gone on into supposedly wild dogs in victoria that over 90 percent of them are actually almost or all purebred dingoes so the whole idea was that you know i'd been working with the, uh, the environment minister and first nations peoples to to trial stopping 1080 poison drops in, in an area of Gary Word National Park there. Um, so for, for those who don't know the, the, the Indigenous language there, that's uh, the Grampians. So there was going to be a small area the Grampians set aside. We were going to be introducing some familial packs of dingoes into that area in a completely fenced off way and reintroduce the native species in there and look at the impact and see how that occurred. You know, this restoration of the natural balance of having an apex land predator rather than meso predators such as foxes and cats, because we do know that these dingoes take care of those. That's that's what they do. There's a great example in Mount Rothwell in Victoria where that's exactly what they did. And there was that, you know, it even restored the natural vegetation because animals such as goats, etc. That were eating weeds and eating the seeds of weeds and then spreading those seeds through their droppings all of that wound right back to or almost a complete restoration of the native vegetation which in turn encouraged small ground dwelling marsupials to come back to that area as well so there's a lot to be said of that all of that works when you eradicate 1080 from that landscape you have to do both because it's such a disgusting poison and as you know robert it, it it kills so many animals that are non-target species, so many that are also native species, many of which are endangered or under threat you know, because you know, some of those are carnivorous themselves or they're omnivorous or they might even be carrion species of birds, for instance, that come down and feast on a carcass. Now, the problem with 1080, of course, is depending on the dosage rates, that stays alive in the system of that you know, the, of that particular dead animal, sometimes for many, many months, depending on the conditions around. So birds can feast on the carcass, they're then infected, they fly away, they succumb, and in turn, they become food themselves and so on and so forth, this secondary contamination cycle that we talk about. But foxes also, who are one of the main targets of, of this poison, I'm all for getting rid of introduced species from our faunal landscape. They don't belong there and they do cause enormous problems and, and native species extinction. 100% agree. But they didn't ask to be put here. We have to find better ways to get rid of them from that landscape. Dingoes are the first port of call, in my opinion. Further research into immunocontraception, which I've been pushing for in various state budgets, is another one. But getting rid of 1080 definitely because in particular, foxes have become really smart. Now, they don't consume a bait where they find it, right? They cache those baits, they take them back away, right? And they've also learned in some places, it's been shown from some of the camera work, that they've been able to sniff out the baits that are infected with 1080, that have been injected with 1080, versus things that have not. So they've been like separating and then taking away the meat that they know they can eat, right? And so it, it's becoming completely ineffective. And we also know that cats and foxes in particular, as meso-predators, are very opportunistic. Where they see, now, 1080 is very effective. Don't get me wrong. It does exactly what it's supposed to do. It wipes out all of those foxes in a particular area. Foxes in another area simply just move in. 
and they usually then breed up in greater numbers. So we just recreate the problem and we make it worse. We keep doing this same old, same old with one of the worst poisons in the world that's been banned in so many countries simply because of how cruel it is. Even those countries that still have other programs to get rid of in, in, you know, in introduced species, they, they've gotten rid of 1080 because they understand it, it, how, just how cruel and uncontrollable it is. I hope I get this right, but I can remember you know, the World Health Organization listing of the 195 mm. countries in the world, 189 of them banned 1080 for its unknown environmental damage and threat to life. Yep, correct. And, you know, it's, it's so bad, um, it's so dangerous that it is still to this day listed on the Australian government's website of chemicals of terrorist concern because it, that's what it was originally created for. It was tasteless, odourless and soluble in water remaining at potency. That's what it was created to do. It was a chemical warfare weapon developed at a time when, you know, you had both sides during a world war looking at, well, you know, how do we produce these chemical weapons of war to gain an advantage over the other? So it's like, you know, World War One. we had mustard gas. That was the, the, the main thing that was developed to go out there. 1080 was developed during that time as a thin synthesised version of the naturally occurring fluoroacetates in the globulin species of plants. And, and it was just but highly synthesised, hundreds of thousands of times more potent and with no antidote. So, but it was considered too difficult to handle. It was very expensive to manufacture at that stage. Mustard gas was cheap and easy, so both sides went with that. But, you know, then its evolution further down the track towards the Second World War, where it wasn't even deployed, but there were plans to deploy it via bombing raids, the water supplies of surrounding nations, you know, that they were at war with during that period, including uh, the United Kingdom. Now, if they'd been able to do that in great numbers, it would have been absolutely horrendous. But again, it was shelved because the, the German army found that it was too difficult to handle. They'd been able to make it cheap to make. They'd, you know, they, they'd refined the process, but it became so it was so difficult to handle that they were forbidden from doing so. So it was just warehoused. And it was the Americans who found it and then shipped it back to the US, modified it again and reduced its strength in some ways and produced a series of rodenticides that were based upon it and that that's what they marketed out to other countries. And Australia was one of those until we began to purchase in the 1950s the actual full substance and we applied and got licences to, you know, to, to use the, the, the imported powder and turn it into other things and use it from there. And that, I guess, is the problem, is that it's become such a part of the farmer's toolkit because it's been here for so long now that it becomes difficult to change the attitude to get it out of that system and replace it with something else. And that something else has to not be another poison. Like if we were successful, for instance, in banning 1080 right across the country, you know, let's, let's live in a perfect world here, now, all governments, all organisations say, yep, it's terrible, we're going to get rid of it. We don't want to replace it with something that's equally as bad. You know, we, we, we need to have a change in attitude. So we don't want to go to the PAP, for instance, or another derivative that does the same type of thing. We need to find this other way because over the years, we have spent hundreds of billions of dollars on 
chemically trying to rid our landscape of species that didn't ask to come here. In our stupidity, we brought them here, sometimes just for recreation. That's certainly what the foxes were here for. So we have a responsibility to look after the bottom line of our budget. Can you imagine the budget savings if we invested more in immunocontraception and in five years' time we had a universal immunocontraceptive that could get rid of these species that was safe for other species to consume, you know, native species, then the, the, the budget forward estimates would save billions of dollars, you know, tens of billions of dollars, even over a five-year estimate. So you know, why do what we've always done and have not the result we're looking for and in the process waste taxpayers' money? Let's invest in better technology and let's get rid of the problem properly and humanely. That seems like a very practical approach, but there's another aspect that I hope we can touch on now. We have a responsibility regarding humane treatment of all animals, and there's nothing more inhumane than poisoning, especially with 1080. Yeah, yep, that's right. I mean, I, I did some work prior to the budget um, with Melbourne Uni, who are a long way down the track in a, a target-specific immunocontraceptive. Uh, they needed some funds to finish off, finish off that research in terms of field trials. That's To this day, that remains a, a great disappointment for me because we presented a great presentation to the government to do this, but ultimately it was unsuccessful. And that doesn't mean that they won't continue to try and finalise that research I'll be pointing them in the next couple of weeks in the direction of a grant system where they might be able to secure that funding because certainly then that would go a huge way, you know, down to making sure that we can get rid of 1080 and other, you know, other poisons off the market, you know, in, in this country. So you're absolutely right. It, it's, it's our moral obligation to begin with to make sure that we do this in the most humane possible way that we can. And and that involves not causing those species unnecessary pain and suffering. For my witnessing swamp wallabies being poisoned with 1080, it is horrific. Two days of, uh, it was described by one vet as being electrocuted continuously for two days. Mm -hmm. And one of my mentors, Dr. Peter Rawlinson, said that no one could ever argue that it is not disgustingly painful. Well, th- this is it. I mean, look, not that I would ever want to subject anyone to it, but I often think that for some in government, and, and this is all governments, doesn't matter which state you're in or federal, if you could pop them in a room and, you know, show them, you know, live what happens to a native species such as these wallabies when they ingest 1080, and let them have to sit there and see it for themselves in reality. So not something on a, a video that they can switch off or pause or do whatever, but in reality, see what happens. I think that would, I certainly you'd win over, I think you would win over some hearts and minds at that point, but it's getting them to that point where they will sit in that room and see that. That's the problem. It would be a worry if they weren't changed by what that, that those images, you know. This, yeah, and you would certainly have to question their character, wouldn't you? Yeah, the tentatic seizures are absolutely horrific. Mm-hmm. Um, secondary poisoning, you touched on it, and my personal experience with this is in our region, uh, there are fox baiting programs with 1080, and we immediately notice, and once again, it's anecdotal, the wedge-tailed eagles do not have chicks 
uh, following a fox baiting. I've asked many questions of many intelligent people, and a suggestion was even the most minute trace of 1080 picked up from a, a, a carcass is enough to damage the shell structure of the young. But we love our wedgies flying overhead, a proud symbol of this country, mm -hmm. and to see them, the pair without their usual young, and it only happens in the years where they do, where they do a 1080 campaign in the region. Mm -hmm. Secondary poisoning, it's practically ignored by the Conservation Department. In fact, they, on all their information, they quote, it does not affect the species, native mm -hmm. species. Andy, what I think they mean is if they drop a bait in a voca, the wedgetail eagle there will drop like flies, but they're perfectly okay in Gippsland and up on the Murray. Uh, yeah, I agree. I think that's, that, that is exactly their reasoning. You know, that, yeah, a, a bait in one place doesn't affect a species in another area, so that's okay. That means it doesn't affect the target. Any, it only goes for the target species. This is, this is the great lie that precipitates the prolonged use of 1080 poison in this country. Yeah, and we've had cavalcade of federal threatened species commissioners in over the last 10 years who, who've all you know, trotted this line out, you know, and some of them have even been photographed with their social media, you know, um, in, injecting a bait, you know, and saying, here I am, I'm doing the right thing, here's me, you know, and, and it's, I, I, it makes me want to, you know, throw my coffee cup against the wall every time I see it, you know. It's, uh, it's so frustrating. Like you've said, you know, you, you quoted a couple of the vets, you know, that, what they have to say about it. When there is so much research, so many papers written, so many professionals, so not just wildlife vets, but any vet that has studied, you know, because to get there, you know, to be able to practice, to be able to, you know, become a qualified vet, they, they study toxicology of animals. They understand what happens when you introduce a poison to an animal. They know. They, they know exactly what happens. And I have never once met a vet that has said it does what you know, the propaganda around it says. They've always said, no, it's horrible, it's got to go. I've not met a single vet that's that's backed it. You know, and I have discussions with the AVA um, on a regular basis, you know, on on different different topics, you know. So I've not met anyone from the AVA that says it's okay to use. Will agriculture collapse if we ban 1080 today? Absolutely not. As I said, the, the numbers that they're talking about in terms of uh, stock predation are just in, absolutely incorrect because it, it, you and I can walk down the street today together and start talking to people and, and make up any number about any subject that we want, you know, that, you know, did you know, sir, that 97% of Australians, 14 million Australians love vanilla slices, and, but we've got nothing to back it up. You know, we have we have no numbers, we have no research, we have no data, we can't prove it. It's just an opinion. And that's exactly what these people are saying. It's yeah, you know, because there's there's been this lionization, this adoration of the, the farmer, you know, the man on the land, you know, the salt of the earth, that anything that they might say has to be taken as gospel truth. Because if you if you try to question that, then you become one of these others, or one of those troublemakers, you know, what they'd say and a, a farmer would lie, that's just horrendous, you can't do that. But, you know, they're, they're people like anybody else and that they they have a livelihood that they think they should need to protect 
And they also have an opinion of themselves as a community that they should be believed no matter what, that they know better than anybody else. Well, no one knows everything and everyone should be open to having their viewpoint changed by having new information come forward. So certainly from that perspective, agriculture in this country will not collapse if we ban 1080 poison, for instance. And in my view anyway, we certainly need to cut down on the amount of animal agriculture that we rely on in this country, everywhere in the world. And in fact, that's the view of now the IPCC, you know, um, the Intergovernmental Pan um, Panel on Climate Change has persistently in every report that they've produced for years and years and years have said that animal agriculture is one of the drivers of the climate emergency. You need to cut down on your production of it by X percentage. Now, years ago, that started out at a very small percentage and it's grown and grown and grown over the years because, you know, the IPCC keeps saying, well, you're not listening to us. You can stop your reliance on fossil fuels. You can stop your reliance on this. You can change your industries to renewable energy. You can do all those sorts of things, and that's great, and that will work to a degree, but it's a whole package. And part of that package is cutting down on animal agriculture and investing far more money and time and land space into plant-based agriculture because it can provide all of the proteins that are needed for any anything that all the body needs and it's a, a growing area you know it's it's worth 160 billion dollars you know the export market of it you know and you know I keep trying to promote that here in Victoria and I'm, I've the government's now listening because we're you know we're, we're talking about transitioning farmers and giving them financial assistance to move away from animal ag into the raw materials, into the grains that are needed to produce all of these, these products and to have centres of excellence established, you know, where these firms that make these products will come and invest the time and have the research and, and put into it to produce them. And then, you know, Australia's in a great, fan, a fantastic place. I look at my electorate of Western Victoria. I have, you know, uh, an airport right on the doorstep of one of my suburbs, Lara, which actually has... It's an industrial suburb. It has industrial parks dedicated where they're right next to a train line. So all this stuff can come in from Western Victoria, be offloaded, be manufactured, and then drive across the road into a plane terminal for international travel to be exported around the world. You know, it's, it's not just about saving the planet. It's about making sure that farmers can thrive, that they, they can move into this new era of economic prosperity that saves the planet at the same time. Because we've got it all here, and and it also then creates jobs. You know, it it it's it's a, a perfect thing to get involved in, and the government's seeing that. They're seeing that this is a way to move. But like everything else, it's it's like treacle. You know, it's it's so slow to move. Well, congratulations once again on a funding issue, Donald Plant Based Manufacture in. Mm. And believe me, Andy, the irony was not lost on old-time activists. The plant-based industry set up in Donald, the duck-shooting mecca of Victoria. Yeah. yeah. But it's also where the crops are grown. Exactly. Exactly. We were um, One of the things we got in this May budget, for instance, again, was almost $13 million um, for a, a grain hub at Horsham, you know, where they, they're researching how to better, you know, make sure the crops have the, the right amount of yield, that they're resistant to localised and potentially imported diseases, you know, those sorts of things, you know, and 
and to make sure that in that respect, uh, reaching out to the, the grain farmers and those who want to be grain farmers and saying, listen, all these different varieties are available. You know, just talk to us. We can help you with that, you know, and, and to make sure that this all happens. And you're right. It's that it's that that whole area. The soil is perfect. You're right. You know, this whole move away from a traditional colonialist, I suppose, way of looking at agriculture, you know, and, and moving forward into the future. And, and, and that involves less cruelty for everyone. Yes, it's absolutely can be done and can be achieved, no matter what your personal beliefs are or even what you eat. There's mm. no excuse for cruelty. I have, a, I have a fantastic team working with me. You know, um, all of us come from uh, our background is from an activist background to begin with. So we know the issues and, you know, it means that we maintain our roots with that, that whole activist community and are aware then of developments and, and how things are moving so that we can ask the right questions in the right place. But, you know, politics has always been about relationships and, you know, we I decided very early on that should I get into parliament, it was going to have to be about, well, what can I get done? What can I achieve? I can use demonstrative politics and not get anything, but, you know, raise an issue and, and rant and rail at the government, you know, in the chamber and tell them how terrible they are, and then that doesn't get anything done. You know, so to actually form the relationships with these people who are in there with you and so that, you know, you can raise your issues in a, a non-confrontational way and, and make them aware of what they are and what needs to be done to fix that and try and take them on that journey with you, that gets a whole lot more done. You know, I'm, I'm really proud of the fact we're putting together a, a bit of a document now prior to the election on, on what we've been able to achieve since we've been in there. And we've managed to get over the four years so far close to $200 million in funding for different projects, which include direct funding for wildlife shelters and, and other projects. But apart from that, you know, we've been able to force some legislative change as well. You know, we've we've managed to make sure that the Wildlife Act 1975 is being substantially reviewed. Now, that's, that's a really, really big ask, that one, because since it's, was its inception, it's never had a substantive review. It's only ever been amended when other things on the outside of it in subordinate legislation have affected it that have required a change or an amendment. So it's it's become a mess and it contradicts itself from one chapter to another sometimes. So that work is underway right now. The finalisation of that won't happen in this term of government because it is such a big review. It's being undertaken by government. We expect it to see it finalised in the next term of government. Likewise, the Prevention of Cruelty to Animals Act, 1986, it was written, and exactly the same thing has occurred there. And there is such a crossover between the two. So, you know, that act has actually, when they looked at it, when we convinced government to look at it, they understood that it was so unworkable that it had to be completely thrown out. So a new act is being written now called the Animal Welfare Act. Uh, and that's even now, it's actually going to undergo a change as well to something that we think is a, a title that's a lot better because we've added a whole heap of input into that, which which talks about protection and, and recognition of, of animals in different ways. So that's also being rewritten. That was meant to be delivered and voted upon in February of this year. But again, it's so huge what they have to undertake. And 
you know, so again, that will happen in the next term of government. That will be brought forward and be voted on. Uh, and part of that, you know, I have to say is actually my fault because I chaired the task force on rehoming pets and we brought forward 17 recommendations uh, from that report that will require alteration of some of the amendments that they've already made in throwing out the Act. So they'll have to be revisited and rewritten. So, but that's a good thing because it means that when it does come before the Parliament, it's going to be as close to getting it right as we possibly can. It doesn't mean that if we if something goes along and we figure out there's a problem, then that can't be changed, you know, but because the substantive of it will be so close to perfect that it'll make that so much easier. When looking at Podka, uh, can you make sure that Section 9, 1, A and C are heavily underlined and not changed too much because practically everything we do is governed by that one section of the Protection of Animal Act, which says not only is it illegal to do certain things to animals, there's also a problem if you don't do something to assist wildlife. Yep. Now, quite often we have to enter private property where people are not present, etc. And, and if police arrive, they ask what's your authority to be here, and we quote them that section of POTCA. Yeah. So please underline that and get that printed in, in, in big letters, will you? Yeah, absolutely. So so really what we're, we're talking about there is the extension of the Good Samaritan Act. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so that's that's. I don't expect when I see the final draft. Well, I won't see the final draft unless unless I get re-elected. But um, I don't expect to see that that changed. Um, I, I think that there is a genuine recognition that people want to help when they see an animal in need, even if that animal is on private property. You know, because so many it happens a lot in wildlife, as you know. You know, where a roo might get hit, but they keep moving. You know, and they bounce over a fence onto private property. I mean, technically, a person, yes, is committing trespass uh, under, you know, the criminal the criminal act, but uh, it's being done so with the best intention, you know, and I think there's a certain amount of common sense. Look, put it this way, I've never met a policeman who has prosecuted anybody for doing that, for going to the assistance of wildlife that's been injured. Down my way, you know, certainly police actually ring, have, have a couple of the wildlife rescuers' numbers on speed dial, and... Yeah, because they they the police get called out and don't know what to do, you know. So they'll call these guys, they'll come out, they'll climb the fence with the full knowledge of the police, and it, it's all perfectly fine. Yeah. So yeah, it, it comes down to a common sense interpretation of the act, and as long as that is in there and they can quote that, then I think they're always going to be okay. Just covering my own backside, Andy. <laughs> <laughs> Fair call. That's exactly right. I started this by thanking you for everything you've done and people who are listening to this program over its history would have realised you were mentioned nearly every program and that's only because of the hard work you do on behalf of Australian wildlife. Before we go, if there's a final statement you'd like to make about 1080 poison? What I would say is, is that 1080 is perhaps one of the biggest crises facing our wildlife going forward. We have emergency situations such as fire and flood, and they affect our wildlife. But what 1080 does is that it artificially interferes with the faunal hierarchy of the wildlife in this country. 
we remove our apex predator at our peril, the dingo, because they are the primary target along with foxes. It's the dingo that suffers when we put down fox baits. We have to get away from that. We have to return that hierarchy to where it's supposed to be. And if we do that, if we try that, we will see that we're not going to get our toes burnt when we put them in the water, that the sky is not going to fall, and that what our First Nations people have been telling us for years and years and years is actually true, that if we let the animals live how they're supposed to live, then these things will take care of themselves to a large degree. We can use sorts other sorts of interventions if we need to, such as flagging, fencing, all sorts of different things. But unless we ban 1080 and reintroduce the dingo, we're not going to succeed and we'll stay on this roundabout and it's other species of native animals that are going to suffer. This state, this country, has the worst record of species extinction of any country in the world. That's not a badge that we should wear with pride. Clearly, we're doing something wrong. Clearly, we have to reanalyze what we do and dramatically change it. We just have to have legislators who are brave enough and bold enough to make that change. I'm happy to take them along and drag them along the way, but they've got to be willing to listen. Andy Medic, thank you so much for your time. Cheers. Thanks, Rob. Thank you very much, Andy. Australia needs more MPs like Andy Medic. Now we speak with Alex from the Coalition of Australians Against 1080 Poison. Alex is a long-time campaigner against the use of this horrific poison. Let's go straight to the interview. Alex, why should 1080 poison be banned? Well, 1080 poison is one of the most toxic substances in the world. Australia is one of the handful of countries that continues to allow its use, uh, despite the fact that we are aware of the adverse animal welfare outcomes that it causes. Uh, despite that, it continues to be used and it continues to be used in increasing quantities, targeting more and more species. Uh, but of course, even though we are told those are the species that it is targeting, it is an indiscriminate killer. Uh, it's a food chain killer, uh, meaning that it passes through the entire ecosystem, killing everything and every animal that it comes in contact with. Uh, it is an animal welfare crisis, in Australia, it, it must end. There is no alternative. It must be banned in every corner of the country. Sodium monofluoroacetate is uh, the technical chemical name for this poison. Uh, the name 1080 poison is uh, derived from the fact that it was the 1080th chemical uh, that was investigated. Uh, at the time, there was a, I guess, a lack of other poisons. It was all being used elsewhere. So they were trying to come up with something else that could be used. Uh, and that's where it got its uh, common name, uh, 1080 poison. I struggled to come up with the words to describe how horrendous the impacts this poison has. 
Uh, I, we regularly get contacted by people who have uh, witnessed firsthand uh, what 1080 poison does, and they are they are speechless. They are outraged, and they are never the same again. Uh, many of these people uh, witness their beloved uh, companion animals, so mostly dogs, die this way. And the the stories that they tell us, the 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 things that they have seen, it 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 beggars belief that it it actually happens. But they are never the same. They see these dogs uh, for hours on end, uh, struggling, lying on their sides, running unable to, to control their bodies, uh, bleeding from every hole in their body, uh, and there's nothing that they can do. There, there is no antidote for this poison. The best that they can do is, is, is be there with them, try to comfort them. So often they'll sit with them for hours on end. Uh, they tell them they love them. They sit and wait for them to die, uh, sometimes 72 hours after they've started to show symptoms. So that's in, that's three entire days of endless agony. And vets have, have, have said that during that time, it, it's like they, they are being endlessly electrocuted. And that there is no excuse for this to continue to happen. A mentor of mine, Dr. Peter Rawlinson from La Trobe University, uh, once explained 1080 poisoning to me as if you witnessed an animal going through the seizures and the pain and the confusion that is caused by this toxic substance, it would be banned immediately. Yes, it would. And that's a key reason that it has been banned in so many other countries in the world. Australia There's only six. There's only yes. six countries that use it. Two countries do that. That's Australia and New Zealand. We are so far behind the rest of the world that time is running out. Um, we, we know that between one and two Australian mammals uh, go extinct every decade. And we're told that 1080 is used to protect those species. We've been using this for 60 years, but it's getting worse. And 1080 has made it worse. There's so many myths about 1080. And I think the one that does the most damage is that uh, Australian native species have a tolerance to 1080. Unless that species comes from a limited part of Western Australia, that's just not true, is it, Alex? No, it's not true at all. And you're right, that is one of the key myths that is continuously peddled uh, by, by basically the propaganda machines of the Australian government. And the reason that they do that is to continue to, to endow this despicable practice with a social license that would disappear if people became more aware uh, or witnessed or spoke to somebody who had witnessed or, you know, came across the information that I came across when I first learned about this. And, and that's, you know, that's where we need to start. And that's the work that's being done by quite a few people across the country right now. And it's such important work. Reports from the World Health Organization that lists uh, 189 of the world's 196 countries don't use 1080. Majority of 1080 is used in these six countries for protecting transport of grains in sea vessels. They're used as a rodent side. 
Yet countries like Belize won't even allow a ship treated with 1080 into their national waters. That's got to raise issues. Of course it does, yeah. It, it, it just goes to show that if it were not for the, the lies and the myths that we are told, uh, it, it would come crumbling down upon itself. And these, these are not, they're not secrets. They are just outright lies. And, you know, it's, these, it's been known for decades. There's been reports in peer-reviewed academic journals saying 1080 is not humane. It causes waves of death. That's, that's an expression that Deborah Bird Rose used. Waves of death when it's used. We have an authority in this country regarding what is cruel and what is not cruel. It's called the RSPCA. And year after year, they declare the use of 1080 as being cruel and inhumane. Why do we use it? It's a great question. It, it comes down to the fact that it is relatively easy to use. It's, it's possible uh, to drop it out of helicopters to drop it out of fixed wing aircrafts. It can be dispersed across great distances and kill a lot of animals. And that's their goal. They want to kill a lot of animals, but they kill many, many more in the process. And it is also incredibly cheap. Uh, when it was first introduced or imported into Tasmania in the 1950s, it cost about $300 per pound. Uh, today, it can be dispersed across an entire hectare for up to a dollar. Uh, you can buy pre-made baits for $3 each. That's less than the cup of a coffee. And it comes down to the fact that it is cheap, it is easy to use, and it's what we've done for decades. And that's, that's where the, the problems lie. It is obviously non-species specific. Anything that takes up a bait will be poisoned. Of greater concern is the issue of secondary poisoning, where any scavenger or carnivore that feeds on an animal killed by 1080 is also susceptible to the poison. Yeah, that's right. Absolutely. And to make matters worse, uh, it's not an immediate death. So an animal who ingests the bait will not die within minutes of ingesting it. It takes, you know, somewhere between, depending on the species, three hours to 20 hours before they start to show symptoms. And during that time, uh, animals can travel great distances. So pigs can travel up to eight kilometres after they've ingested a bait. And, you know, during that time, they disperse that poison throughout that, that area. So if they, you know, eat a bait at X, They'll travel eight kilometers to Y and then they'll die. That poses uh, immediate threats for any animals in that other area as well. So that's where secondary poisoning comes in in that way. Uh, it also becomes a problem when it is ingested at a dosage that is sublethal. So it may not necessarily kill the, the first animal, but they ingest enough that it causes them you know, long-term problems. So it can impact their reproduction and it can even travel through, you know, mother's milk to, to their offspring. Countries don't use 1080 because of unknown environmental damage and threat to life. 
Mm. Yet we spread it around this country like their biscuits. We do, yeah. In one part of New South Wales, just to give you an example, um, it, it in, we increased the amount that was dropped by over 200% from one year to the next. It's not dropping. It's not doing what we're told it's doing. And yet we're, we're using more and more and more of it. I've just spent a period of time chatting with Andy Medic, the uh, Animal Justice Party MP, about 1080 poison. I don't want to repeat everything I did in that interview. But Alex, there are questions that people need simple answers to. Can I throw some of them at you? Yes, of course, please. Is 1080 humane? No. It is one of the cruelest uh, deaths that it could be imagined. Uh, The people that I've spoken to uh, are devastated. Um, I've got a story here that I could read you from one person that that I've spoken to, and then they wrote down their experience. Um, I can read you an excerpt of that if you would like. Yes, please. Okay. On Monday, I might get a bit... uh, broken up uh, every time I read this it, it it's like the first time I'm reading it again so it's a bit, a bit hard there is nothing wrong with being emotional it shows you are, are a human being with who has some empathy for the animals involved and if there's something missing in this world today it's empathy so go ahead Alex thank you Rob. Uh, on Monday night I lost my best friend my companion my soulmate my beautiful Diego The trauma of having to watch my best friend scream, thrash, and howl in agony while I could only watch, powerless to help him, will haunt me forever. I have an endless ache that goes to my very core. Those that know me know our bond. It was one that comes only once in a million lifetimes. I was lucky enough to be blessed to experience it while he was here. Diego traveled with me almost everywhere I went, He was my hot water bottle in winter, my lap warmer. He was my alarm in the morning and my continual joy during the day. He loved to steal the swag and lay on my clothes. He was the only dog I know that wagged his tail up and down, not side to side. He was the coolest dog in the world. That was Monday, but the news worsened by Tuesday when Chevy was nowhere to be found. Friends and family searched for her, but it would seem the same horrible fate had taken her from us as well. Chevy was beyond beautiful and had lost a lot of love to give. She was Diego's comrade, and I'm going to miss her beautiful face and goofy character. I've never been so shattered in my life as I am now. Both of my dogs have died from 1080 poison. If you watch a video, it shows the cruelest, inhumane way for any animal to die. It is a barbaric way to control wild animals and it disgusts me that people think it is okay to kill any animal in such a way. I cannot emphasize enough how horrendous a death this poison is. His screams and thrashing will haunt me every time I close my eyes. So that's one story of of many that that we have heard. Uh, I've spoken to people who have uh, grown up from, from the moment that these dogs were born they, they spent, you know, like a lot of us do, most of our uh, waking time or every free moment spending time with them. 
uh, those dogs have lost complete control of, of their bodies and have bitten those people and they've required stitches. Uh, they, they lose complete control. They run into to barbed wire fences. They run into brick walls. Uh, they, this happens for hours on end, up to 72 hours. It's it is torture. It is a death by torture. Unfortunately, I've witnessed uh, native wildlife uh, poison with 1080, and um, I can just personally uh, visualize exactly what that poor pet owner was experiencing. Mm. All right, listen, mate. Some simple questions, right? This is a an Australian animal show. But the use of 1080 affects so many people in this country. They lose livestock. They lose uh, companion animals, much love members of the family. At the same time, one of the justifications is that 1080 is needed to control foxes. Now, there's one, it's one issue to need to control an introduced species but surely we have some responsibility to do it in a humane way. We absolutely do. If you, if you look at um, the, the origins of most, if not all of the species, barring, you know, the dingo and uh, the, the native species that are killed in Tasmania using 1080, all of these species were deliberately introduced to this country. Uh, most of them, so people could emulate uh, the the pastimes of Europeans who would go out and hunt those species. We, we definitely have uh, a responsibility not only to, to acknowledge that, but to, to break the tradition of harm, the tradition of killing. It, it, it must be broken and there are, so, there are other ways. This is just a tradition that we've clung onto because it's easy, because it's cheap, but it, it ha- there is no excuse. There is no excuse. Welcome to the 21st century. You're right. Yeah. yeah. Uh, listen, there was a, a report in January uh, 2008, and I think it was the last one I could find. It was titled something along the lines of sodium fluoroacetate final review report and regulatory decision. And in it, I remember a statement that just shocked me to the bone. It said that although poisoning of non-target species occurs, it is limited to individual animals and does not adversely affect overall populations. Now, that's scientific gobbledygook. A wedge-tailed eagle in central Victoria isn't going to care about whether or not the bait it just ate or the carrion it just fed on is going to kill it. They're not, it's not going to worry about whether or not that affects populations in New South Wales or South Australia or Gippsland or on the Murray, but it certainly kills the hell out of all species that come in contact with that bait that was laid. That's just not responsible. No, it's not. And, it, and it's an, an admission that it does kill those animals. Uh, the, we don't need to really look much further than the fact that in Tasmania, it is deliberately used to kill Bennett's wallabies, patamelons, and, and brush-tailed possums. But you're right. Uh, that, that is one of the, the key uh, 
excuses or rationales that they fall back on that, okay, it may kill uh, an individual, but, but it's not going to affect the, the whole population. That's not good enough. Uh, we're, we're told on uh, at one breath that it doesn't kill these animals. And in the next breath, we're told, okay, maybe it will, uh, but it's not going to hurt too many of them. It, it is, as you said, it's, it's gobbledygook. It makes no sense. It reveals the fact that we are being lied to. Uh, and if it kills one animal and it kills another animal, it doesn't matter what species the first animal is. It doesn't matter what species the second animal is. It kills them both in, an, in a profoundly inhumane way and is unacceptable for both and every species. Alex, in research leading up to this interview, I came across online uh, a page, and I won't mention it because oh, I don't want to give it any credibility, but it had a, uh, a name, Pet Something or Other. And I've never been so wild. It basically was saying that 1080 is a natural occurring substance in Australia and our, all our native animals are immune to it. Now, that's got to be the biggest myth of all time. Yes, it does. Yeah. Uh, it, it kills every animal. It's lethal to all air-breathing organisms, uh, from earthworms to elephants. That's one way of putting it. It is uniformly lethal. Uh, the fact that there are a handful of uh, pea-producing uh, native bushes that, that contain the natural uh, occurring uh, chemical, that's not what we're putting in these baits. That's, it's not like we're going out to these, uh, these Western Australian bushes and picking off peas and putting them into the baits. That's not what we're doing. We're getting this from somebody who's in a hazmat suit in a chemical lab who will if they touch it they're dead it, that's not what we're doing this is a th synthetic material it is not natural and that is uh, on top of the fact that native species are immune that's the second biggest uh, myth and lie that we're told i know from my own experience and i mentioned in a previous interview we know when there's been a 1080 poisoning campaign in this area because the wedgetail eagles don't have young that year hmm. Yeah. Even minute traces cause problems down the chain. Why is it happening? Why in Australia? Is it because the chemical is cheaper? Is it because we're basically stupid and we believe myths? Uh, why Australia? Another 189 countries said we don't want it. It's too dangerous. Why Australia? Any ideas? Because it is cheap because it does kill a lot of animals and that is what they are aiming to do. And because it, we're relatively unique in the fact that there are pockets of the country where these, these plants do exist. There's not, you know, that's in one small area. It, it's not conducive to the whole country. Uh, so that's an excuse that has been, you know, clung onto tooth and nail, it, we're, we're told there are some, you know, natural occurring uh, compounds of this. So we'll hold on to that. We'll tell you that's why it's okay. We'll tell you that's why native species are safe. We won't tell you that it's synthetic. We won't tell you that it, it is directly harming native species. At least 13 uh, are known to be directly impacted by 1080 poison, specifically and particularly in Eastern Australia. And, 
you know, we, we will cling on to this because it's what we've done for decades and it, it keeps uh, industries alive. It keeps money rolling in. It, it comes back to the fact that it is cheap and people get paid to do this. It's not good enough. No, it's not. Are there alternatives? Now, I don't want to talk about alternative poisons because there's Pindone and, and PAP and swapping one poison for another just because it has an antidote is not a good alternative. Are there alternatives to non-specific poisoning to control problem species? Yeah, there are. And the thing that we need to remember is that the dingo has been in this country for at least 5,000 years. They've been here. They've uh, naturally regulated the populations of other species. They're the apex predator in these environments. So they control what happens. They control the, the abundance and the, the, the behaviours of other species in their environment. If we stop killing dingoes, if we protect dingoes, dingoes are uh, the only native species that are unprotected in so many uh, states of Australia. If we protect dingoes, they will do the job for us. They will do everything that 1080 is doing naturally. It will solve the problems that we have created by introducing inappropriate European uh, agricultural techniques to this country. It, it will solve the fact that uh, other species that have been introduced that may, you know, prey upon other smaller species, dingoes will solve that for us. Dingoes will do the job for us. I've had meetings with uh, National Parks and Wildlife representatives who have admitted that. They know the fact that dingoes will do what they're trying to do better than they could ever. And that's, that's, that's the crux of the issue. We need to acknowledge, respect, and protect dingoes. They're the natural uh, alternative, and that's what we should be doing. There have been some small pilot programs along these lines, like Mount Rothwell, and it appears as though looking at the full biodiversity of an environment where we re-establish a natural order may be a hell of a lot better than pouring poisons onto the countryside. That's obvious. Uh, Alex, look, I don't know. Uh, You're a spokesperson for the coalition, and there are a number of groups involved that for many years have fought against 1080. I I know I was a president of an organisation that fought against 1080 in the late 80s and early 90s. We did manage to stop the aerial baiting of swamp wallabies in pine plantations in Gippsland, but really, that was only after the science and logic behind the baiting was exposed as completely faulty. Where do we go? What's the next step? The, the thing that I always run up against is a lot of people who I talk to assume that because 1080 is so bad that it's already been banned. People assume that because it is so bad, it must have already been banned. So we need to as a first step, raise awareness of the fact that, no, it's not banned. It's used a hell of a lot in this country. We need to raise that awareness, express to people what 
the the impacts of this are and there are mountains of evidence there's mountains of people that, that, that could be spoken to about this we need to rise to rise up against the the governments the the lies and the myths that they rely on to to get this to get this banned to get it banned people assume it's banned it's not but it has to be it's an animal welfare crisis there's some native species that have a certain amount of tolerance, and that seems like that is what's fed the myth that has brainwashed the masses. But that that's uh, a small part of the country, and it, it doesn't protect any of the other species that are in that, that area. No, and, certainly not. And if it kills one animal in a horrible way, and we're, when we're, you know, at, we go to lengths to say, no, it doesn't. No, it doesn't. Native species are fine. We do that because we know how bad it is. We know that it would be unacceptable to kill those animals in that way. If it is unacceptable to do it to that animal, it's unacceptable to do it to any other animal. Yeah, you know, I don't have a problem with that logic. Um, there may be pest species that need to be controlled or eradicated even, but we have a moral duty to do it in a humane fashion. And certainly 1080 is not humane. It is one of the cruelest substances I've ever seen here. And uh, I'm thinking back to those swamp wallabies in Gippsland and their deaths were horrific. In fact, euthanasia was the kindest thing that we could do. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, these carrots dyed blue were supposed to make the baits species specific. It's the most illogical thing I've ever heard. Yeah, I, I, I don't I don't know what the, the reasoning behind that that is. I, I think they were afraid kids would pick up bits of carrot and start eating them. And so yeah. they dyed them blue. Uh, I don't know, but brought that campaign to a head was that two flights overflew the pine plantations and dumped their loads of carrots all over a couple of cattle farms. Mm. The outcome was horrific. Yeah. Yeah. Now, who can we contact? The coalition? Yeah. Get yeah. more information? Absolutely. We have a website. It's ban1080.org.au. Um, we have started a few uh, regional groups. Um, so what we do is there's communities across the country who are concerned, uh, like we are, about the use of 1080. And they're working together with other people in their areas. So they lobby their, their local governments. Uh, we, we provide them with tools, uh, resources. So if that's something that somebody might be interested in or even starting a new one, that information's all on our website as well. We have a couple of other resources. So we're working on a fairly comprehensive report on 1080 in Australia. Uh, it will contain all of the information and a couple of other uh, pretty valuable resources. So, yeah, information on who you can contact if you believe that you've you've come across an animal who has uh, ingested 1080, uh, what you can do, um, and really just to join uh, the community that is that is growing, that is really growing against this this terrible terrible poison. Alex, to be honest, I thought it'd be dead and gone by now. Honestly, we mm. thought we had this one in you know, 89, 90, when you got a moratorium on the aerial baiting, but all they did was just change the method of baiting and mm. change the species. Look, mm. I understand it's a very complex issue. We will link that uh, website to the on-demand page of this interview so that people can just simply one-click 
and go to your website for some really good information. Alex, if we can ask you to surmise the issue of 1080 poisoning, are you able to do that in a sentence or two that we can record and use on future programs? I can do my best. I, I tend to struggle with, uh, with this issue because... There's... Okay, take 10 sentences then. <laughs> <laughs> um, 1080 poison has been used in Australia for over 60 years. Uh, we've been told that it's uh, used to protect native species or farmed animals from predation. Uh, it hasn't done its job. It has failed to do its job. In the process, it has killed hundreds of thousands, if not millions of other animals, and it is an animal welfare crisis. It, it must be banned. Look, it's, it's important. Look, I don't know if this little segment we're doing now will be cut out of the edit. It probably will. But sometimes it's important to let the listener know that there are real people fighting real campaigns with real concerns. And, and, and I think it's sometimes good to let people in a little bit, just so our listeners can get to know you a little bit better. Can we, can we go into how, how did you actually get involved in the 1080 campaign? Well, I've been uh, involved in various animal protection and welfare um, projects for for quite a long time now, so going on 15 years or something. Um, but it wasn't, 1080 wasn't something that I had come across for a long time. Um, so I would go to national parks, for example, and I, I'd walk around and I'd see those signs that, that we all see uh, that say, warning, 1080 poison is used here. Um, be careful, uh, it will kill you. Uh, but I didn't think much of it. I um, walked straight past it because I just assumed that if it was being used, there was a good reason for it. It could be justified and it wasn't going to hurt uh, any animals or cause them cruelty. It wasn't going to cause them suffering. There must be a good reason for it, uh, but there's not. Uh, quite a few years later, I'd, I'd gone through working at a couple of animal rights organisations and I was sent an email and the subject uh, heading of the email was 1080. I didn't know what it was. I, I, I looked at it and I kind of just assumed that it must be some sort of, you know, uh, code for the file that I was being sending. Um, but no, it wasn't. It, it was the worst thing that I've probably ever seen. Uh, and it changed me uh, immediately. Um, and from that moment on, it's, it's been something that, that I have lost sleep over, but I've also cherished the little wins that have come in, in, in between then and now. Um, but the, the video that I clicked on in that email, uh, it was a video of a dog who looked a lot like a dog that I'd adopted when I was a kid. Uh, his name was Buster, a little black and white boy, uh, but, but this dog's name was Ben. And when I pressed play, uh, Ben was sprawled out on the concrete of, a, of an open garage. Uh, he was laying on one side. Uh, all four legs were kicking uncontrollably. Um, there was thick, thick white froth coming out of his mouth. And the scene was, was devastating. It was unlike anything that I've ever seen. And... Over the course of the next couple of hours, 
occasionally, every now and then, uh, Ben's little body would stop kicking uh, and he'd stretch out across the concrete. And it was in those moments that, that I could see the, 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 the pure terror that was in his eyes and all of the blood, the blood in my body in that moment uh, froze. It felt like ice. And I had no doubt, no doubt that he knew that he was dying and he was in terrible pain. And that's when I knew that I needed to, to do everything that I could to, to talk to people, to educate people, to raise awareness and to work together as a community to get this terrible stuff outlawed for good. To get more good information, go to ban1080.org.au. That's ban1080.org.au. Thank you for listening. My name is Rob Armstrong. And this is The Wildlife.